to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the cast, the cinematographers, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, and we're, we're talking to some people today, interesting people. Um, we're in the heart of award season now. All the films, all the, the big, let's wait until it's time to vote before we release films. All the big anticipated films uh, are hitting the screens right now over the next, uh, between now and Christmas. Um, one of them, it is my pick of the year. It, for me, it, this is the best film of the year. It is Belfast. It is written and directed Kenneth Branagh. It is, let's face it, it is pretty, it is kind of semi-autobiographical from his days as a young boy in Belfast, Ireland. Um, it is award-worthy on every level, not just his best picture, but best cinematography from Harris uh, Zambralukas, um, production designer Jim Clay, Van Morrison, does the music in the film, uh, and cast-wise, you have Judy, you know Judy Dench, Ciaran Hines, um, Katrina Balfe, Jamie Dornan. Who knew he could sing? And of course, my pick, best actor, and if nothing else, the Academy needs to bring back the best juvenile actor award for Jude Hill. Steals the film, steals your heart. Uh, he is, uh, you'll be clutching your heart with utter glee and joy watching this young man on screen as little buddy. Just every frame is just, you see life, you feel life in every frame, in every face. There is some imagery of, of Judy Dench that is just to die for. And one of the big tricks is Kenneth Branagh, you know, he and Harris were shooting 60 frames uh, a second. So then in editing, the brilliant editor, um, Una Ni Dangale, um, wonderful Irish woman that you're going to hear my exclusive with her in just a minute here. But it then let Una play with the frame rate of 24, 48, or 60 frames a second, which just serves the film so well for, in many instances, giving us a beautiful tableau effect. Um, the film is, it is just, it is a masterpiece. It is masterful. Uh, I am in love with this film. And I hope it's in theaters now. See it, see it, see it, see it. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is absolutely fantastic and as I said in just a, a minute here you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Una um, but also on the show today at the midpoint of the show we have who do we have at the midpoint of the show we have Kirby McClure is calling us to talk about his new film Spaghetti Junction and it was it's I posted the teaser on social media this morning, and the first person I heard from was my cousin-in-law, Obi, who I think is going to be listening uh, just to hear a Kirby talk about this film 
uh, because Spaghetti Junction is a real place. It's outside of Atlanta, and apparently, according to Obi, it's one exit away <laughs> on, on the freeway, the turnpike, um, it, uh, from where he and my cousin Troy live. So, um, and I know Obi immediately uh, apparently was thinking, okay, maybe this film is about the horrible traffic, a horror film about the traffic around Atlanta. No, it's not. Um, but it is a very fascinating, fascinating film that is about a, and we just had, Pam and I just had this conversation earlier, um, a disabled teenager in Spaghetti Junction encounters a traveler claiming to be from the stars. Uh, the film is beautiful. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of allegory in it. I'm really excited to speak with Kirby about it and about casting the amazing Kate Hughes, who actually is, um, ow, where is it? Now I don't know where I put my note. She actually is uh, a triathlete, uh, an amputee triathlete. So can't wait to talk to Kirby at the midpoint of the show. But first, yes, you're going to hear my exclusive with Una, editor of Belfast. Um, Her work is exemplary. This is her either third or fourth outing working with Kenneth Branagh. They have an amazing shorthand and a combination of Kenneth's direction, Harris's lensing, and Una's editing. Um, what's beautiful is that they maintain Young Buddy's POV throughout the film. Uh, and it is so spectacular to stay in, in that nine-year-old wide-eyed wonder of the world. Uh, set in 1969, at the time of the Troubles, in Belfast, um, seeing these ev- world events uh, unfold through the eyes of a child are always very interesting. And this does take place starting on August 15th of 1969 in northern Belfast. Um, throughout the film, there is also, it's black and white, but there is color that gets introduced in some very key moments in the film uh, that deal with Buddy's love of the cinema and movies. Uh, so it, it's just exquisitely done, a 360-degree set, which lets the camera keep revolving and moving around the characters, really immersing us even deeper into the story, into the characters, into Buddy's world. Um, It is. It is simply the best film of the year. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Belfast editor Una Nidangali. Hey, Una. Hey, Debbie. Thank you so much for the interview. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you. I am such an admirer of your work. Um, (laughs) What you did with misbehavior... Um, I thought was brilliant the way you cut that and Stan and Ollie that truly is one of my favorite films it's so beautiful Debbie thank you so much 
much because you know what I love Stan and Ollie and Misbehaviour and so many people still haven't seen them so thank you so much because oh. I'm, I'm really proud of those films as well you know Misbehaviour gave me so many laughs and the period was perfect and the way you cut it you kept the energy going with Stan and Ollie you let it be more personal more intimate and you held frames so that we could really appreciate the talent of the boys playing yeah. Stan and Ollie to the point that they were so good, I forgot we were not seeing Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel. Yeah, yeah, and particularly that scene, I think when um, when Stan comes to say to Laurel, when Hardy says, Stan, I don't, I'm not going to continue in the bedroom, that scene, I think their performances were exquisite, and they actually invited a, a, a more slower more intimate type of editing rather than being too fast or visceral. Oh, I mean... I'm so happy, Debbie. Thank you so much for watching them, and particularly Misbehaviour, because poor Misbehaviour sort of <laughs> got lost with the pandemic. I know! <laughs> it opened the weekend, the cinema shift in but, both UK and America. But that was one of my saving films to keep me laughing when we went <laughs> on, was Misbehaviour. I think I watched it three times already. Um, oh, that's wonderful. But now, now, now we, ha we, we have... To have you weeping and laughing in equal measure. This, <laughs> without a doubt, for my money, this is the best picture of the year. Oh, wow. This is breathtaking. Um, what Kenneth has done and then what you have done, this could have been cut so many different ways. And yeah. turned into something more maudlin, whereas yeah, you yeah. you make this with your cut, with your edit, with your pacing, you keep it moving. Um, it's like oh, before I knew it, the film was over, and <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I need chapter two. What happens to Buddy now? Um, but it is so intimate, it is so personal, and the way you hold the edits we get to see those faces little jude hill he just lights up the screen and then you yeah. get a life lived in the deep creases and lines on judy dench's face and yeah. you really get the the emotional texture of life in this film and then you're melding black and white with color and i did we're <laughs> We're the cinema, and I did not expect to see colorful and fur-laden Raquel Welsh on the screen. I know. Uh, that was a huge surprise. And the same thing with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And then the way the camera moved, and you just celebrated that with your cut, and you went in a little, you know, tightened up. Debbie, yes. I adore you. <laughs> <laughs> getting everything and even you know, when we were cutting those cinema scenes we were really finding the best first shot and that sort of volcanic eruption seemed like a really wet, good way to introduce some color to the film yeah than any of the other shots that we could have started with obviously with the yeah and it fits the, so perfectly with buddy and his whole larger than life everything is larger than life to buddy even though it's contained in this tiny little world in this yeah. tiny little neighborhood in Belfast. And you keep us in those moments. You keep us in that POV. And it is celebratory. It warms the heart. It 
it is happy. it's masterful how did you know, I, think, I think point of view i think i think actually you've actually put your finger on it for me as an editor the thing that i actually really do celebrate is the, the humanity in anything i edit i i'm always looking at the humanity and the empathy with the characters the point of view point of view point of view is it's really important to allow the audience in so that they can actually understand and feel something for these characters so that was for belfast Obviously, Ken wrote, he's a master storyteller. Yes. He wrote the most exquisite script, a beautiful cast, everyone being very generous with their time and talent. You know, under COVID conditions, we all wanted to do this passion project, which is sort of a lower independent budgeted film. And I think one of the challenges that we definitely had in the cutting room was the balance of those tableau-style shots mm-hmm. to keep the pace. Because you're right, we had to keep the pace. So we could, myself and Ken found a way where we could move the scenes around. Because once you began with the colour and you met the child on the street and the first riot, that was sort of locked in structurally. And the ending was sort of locked in structurally. But everything within the body of the film, there was a possibility of moving. And that helped us create pace. Getting into scenes later, getting out of scenes. Um, when we were shooting, obviously, I was able to liaise with Ken. And if, if there were a few scenes that came in a row in a tableau fashion, I was able to sort of suggest to Ken, do you think we need some close-ups here? He could take a look at my cut and say, oh, yeah, let's get some more close-ups. Hence getting, you know, that beautiful Judy Dench close-up when she gives the child the coin and the little boy takes it. Those two close-ups were like little pickups we did to allow you to be with them at that moment. Otherwise, it was only seen in the wider tableau shot when she was through the window. So it was a real passion project i think for all of us and a real privilege to join ken in making his story come to life you know i'm curious for you in a for a film like this because ken had the luxury because the set was built this was built i love at the end of an airstrip you you guys got your own little little belfast village built but it let him work in 360 degrees which i know he loves to do um, especially with scenes like the opening scene with the riot in the Troubles. And yeah. you have poor little Buddy, you know, this tiny little figure in the middle of the street, and the camera's going around, and we've got aerials, and it, the camera's coming down, especially as Ma is coming, running yeah. out, trying to grab him. Working with footage like that, with that 360, is that a help or a hindrance to you in setting tone and and setting a scene? You know what, for this particular one, Ken shot us uh, 60 frames per second, but we had the ability where I could put a time ramp on it so that it began, say, 24 frames per second, then it could move to 60, then I could bring it back to 48, then I could move it again. So there was a fluency. If you, if you watch it again, you'll see that actually it, it doesn't move. We, we changed the timing of the speed as it goes around the child. Mm-hmm. And then sound design is my friend. I think sound and music can enrich any film. So once we put the sound design on it, um, before Ken shot, I was already building up some of the sound design memory motifs. I had asked him what type of things did he remember as a child in Belfast. And he immediately sort of said, you know, the ice cream van, the racquetball man, the um, ship horns. So... Uh, 
specific things that I could begin to build with my uh, assistant editors. I could ask them to download, or I, I even got my dad. You know, I, I recorded my dad on my phone in my garden doing the Rag and Bone Man that I could use it in a temporary way when I was building the assembly during the shoot. Just so at the end of the week, when I sent Ken the assembly, it felt rich and nuanced, and those shots then didn't outstay the welcome because there was sound onto them. Because you can mm-hmm. imagine when they shot it, it is on that airstrip. So we had to rebuild the sound even during the editing before our brilliant sound team joined us. I was already building the sound with my editorial assistants, um, Carly Brown and Lydia Mannering during the shoot. We, we had a few different assistants because of the nature of independent films. Mm-hmm. Some people could only stay for two months at a time because we had three, two months each. Um, because I went on to other jobs. <laughs> other jobs, excuse me. Yeah, so I, so I actually, I rejoiced in what Ken shot for us, um, Rise, because I love the fact that we had slow motion around him, that we could ramp time. And then we had this explosion of activity where I could really just cut and grab snippets of bits that even you know, may have been shot for the later riot scene that I could mm-hmm. squir- squirrel in there of the army guys in the trucks and you could just feel the energy and the sort of visceral nature that that child must have experienced of this. In, in the script, Ken described it as a buzzing, a buzzing noise that becomes a riot. And then I, I tried to do that in the sound design, even in the assembly stage. Well, you so did. I think once you work with sound in a rich way, it helps set the tone and pace of the film as well. Well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because the sound is so key here. We always have the omnipresent underlying sounds of that world. They never yeah. leave us. And then you layer in Van Morrison's music, be it needle yeah. drops, be it scoring, and it adds another whole texture and vibe for the time, for the period. But I find it interesting. I love the fact that you could pull snippets because we really feel, especially in the, in the riot sequences and the build-up to the second situation with the torching, um, I'm yeah. watching some of the some of Harris's shots as, as the group is coming down the street, and then we have people with torches. It was almost like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where they're going to burn, you know, torch the monster, and it's very metaphoric you know, and so beautiful. Beautifully done, and also what I love about what Ken does, he has a lot of them um, sort of John Ford esque framing sometimes. He even has it in All Is True, which is a film I did with him as well, also in a very short passion project a time schedule. But those low angle shots, and then we were trying to use things like Liberty Valance and High Noon mm-hmm. to push the story forward, dealing with, you know, in Liberty Valance, those lines that we chose, you know, why are you getting involved? He tripped me, which is sort of like a metaphor for all that sort of anger that people were getting mm-hmm. involved in things for for reasons that you know, you could question if you if you really want to know why the vigilante was so angry there was and, and high noon obviously we want to sort of plant that seed that the child is watching these high noon shows so then later when his father is in the standoff with you know billy clanton that you can pull back in the high noon music like a, mm-hmm. a clanton payoff and then you see it through the child's eyes. It's his eyes seeing this thing unfold and his father heroically been able to get rid of the gun. And it's little touches of magic realism amongst the authenticity and honesty and simplicity of Ken's shooting style. I think that's what we've... I think, I think we've worked really hard to try and weave that and keep that alive. And once you see it through the eyes of the child, it actually helps you. It invites, you know... 
it, it invites a, a way of cutting it and a way of using the sound design as you go. And say, for example, even you know, like days like these, <clears throat> we had another sequence in the cinema, but we lost it because we had three cinema trips and one theatre trip. And then we were thinking, well, actually, two cinema trips and one theatre trip probably felt right, particularly when we introduced the television, the two television sequences. Mm -hmm. So um, that little sequence was very important because the, we, we had some movements that we were able to move scenes within that body of the film. But Monom has just said, you know, she does not want to go to Australia. And, and they're sort of talking about He's saying to her, well, we could go, you could come on holiday, you could phone, and she's batting back everything. And then we wanted to go to a sequence where you could see why mom didn't want to leave, because so we used days like this, and we sort of collapsed scenes that we hadn't used, of, you know, the family in the park doing the jumping. And by collapsing scenes and allowing this sort of poetic, lyrical moment to happen, I think the audience can understand why, for, for Ma, this was a very difficult decision. This was her home, this was her family, her extended family, because there was always a risk. If you didn't allow Ma have that, or if you didn't allow the audience to see that, the Belfast could be beautiful, and in days like this, all you need is each other. You might get frustrated with her why she didn't leave earlier, because it might seem very apparent to you, why isn't that lady leaving? Mm -hmm. So that, that was also something else that we were very mindful of, of just setting that subtext and making sure that we could do it in a very light-handed way so it didn't become too sentimental or it didn't become too uh, pointed but that the audience could just feel it and understand it on a very unconscious level. Well, I, you definitely succeeded. And I love those lighter moments, those lighter montages that you have. The day in the park is just beautiful. Um, even Buddy and his friends robbing the candy store. Um, it's so childlike. It's so innocent and fun. So it makes you, it's like you can see the beauty. And, and that's one of the great things with this film. Because... It, you you and and Ken keep it in Buddy's POV. We maintain yeah. that childlike. It's like okay, yeah, okay. We have these scary moments, but not everything is scary, and most of it is really good. And then I have yeah. to congratulate you guys on not only picking High Noon and Man Who Shot Liberty Valance um, for the TV movies, but also. The Star Trek snippet, the first season of yeah. Star Trek okay. snippet, and then we go to the cinema. So we've got that whole idea, that childlike dream of the future, of yeah. going where no man has gone, the final frontier, where no man has gone before, and going backwards into when time was just beginning, and then going into yeah. the interim of flying cars. So you yeah. take us through... And off the bus as well, we, we try to make sure that after that beautiful sequence you know, of Granny saying Shangri-La, yes. then we went to the rear view of the bus, even though Bloody was standing up again, we did a little sound design to get him up again because it was a different part of the shelf we were using just to allow the bus to go and then just cut into the rear view of the car. So we did try to find these sort of like visual moments that could connect, the sort of a connective tissue, but again, not to be too overt, but that you might feel it. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything is so well thought out and so well connected, but the, it all comes down to what you have done with the pace and the intimacy to keep us in Buddy's world, in his eyeline, in his periphery. Um, and it is so spectacular, Una. I, I just fell in love with this immediately, even after the shock factor of the opening riot. It's like, whoa! Yeah, I know, Ken knows how to how to kick off a film, and boy, he didn't disappoint yeah. here. 
you know, I'm really curious for you because you have worked with Ken now on a few things. What yeah. is the magic? Well, we've, done, we've done, would you believe we've done three films in two years? Uh, the, it's amazing. through Belfast and Death on the Nile all within a two-year period. It, it's amazing. But you yeah, have, uh, you know, what is the magic that the two of you have? Because <laughs> editing and directing and writing, that goes so hand-in-hand. Um, because it's not that the editor is creating a different film than what the director's vision was. You and Ken are so synergistic, so I'm curious about the magic of the collaboration between the two of you. You know what? I find Ken just a, a wonderful person to work with because he, he invites collaboration for a start-off, which is incredible. And you watch anything, if I was doing, even when I was doing something on All Is True and I had added in this like musical note and I was trying to show it to him, uh, he always uses the term, which I really like, audition that idea to me. You know? So I, I did this thing, and no word of a lie, there was this... JCB, the huge machinery knocking down some set outside a window and what I really appreciate with Ken is three times he let me sort of play the same sequence because I had done a very delicate sound design that I wanted to show him for the swan if you've seen it all is true for Hamlet's death uh -huh. so what I love about Ken is I think both of us come from a point of view of we we love film and we actually share a, a, a desire I think to um, to celebrate humanity and to be fearless in looking at our structure. So although he wrote this most magnificent script, he was really open if, for example, uh, I live in Dublin and I commute to work in London. So I really had an empathy in a, um, with Pa, actually, mm -hmm. as well, because I leave my children at 4 a.m. to take a flight to go to London on a Monday morning. And so when we were cutting the film, for example, the scene where Pa is going and you know, the child's at the window and he's saying two weeks and he's gesturing to go sleep, that was much earlier in the film. And as we were working together, I, I just sort of suggested to Ken, I said, um, if that came a little bit later after the kid didn't want to go to London, maybe it would have a, a, a poignancy, a more visceral poignancy, as opposed to when it was earlier, it was a bit more expositional that dad always has to leave. Yeah. And like immediately, Ken is so bright, so clever. And I do think it is because it is his life story and he did write it, that he actually has the graciousness to listen. And, and if he hears something that rings true for him, he, he invites us and says, okay, let's try it. So I, I did that, in his words, auditioned that for me. I showed it to him, and immediately he was like, yeah, this looks really interesting, and we continued. And once we did that structural move, it, it suggested other structural moves. So we just worked really well together. I mean, we, we were both working remotely, so we were on the phone every morning at 8 and discussing ideas, and I would send him stuff, and he would send it back a note to me, and I would do it again and send it again. So it was just a really wonderful collaboration with someone who was so gracious that I think he, he, you know, a lot of people think because it might be his memoirs that he might have had a, a, a resistance to other people's ideas, but that's not true at all. He actually had the reverse. He had such a strong vision that he didn't lose his vision, even by collaborating with, with his team, Harris, myself, the production designer, because his vision was so strong, he could actually take on board any ideas that we gave him that rang true for him. And then he could have work with them and we could work together so we've been really fortunate we we're we're quite the sort of kindred spirits i think in just you know wanting to do our best work and tell the tell the best story and you know my family um are from my dad uh, is from northern ireland and the script spoke very strongly to me because my dad is very like pop but the, you know they lived through a terrible time of civil injustice and i think what my father always speaks about is the great friendships between protestants and catholics 
And for years, I've actually been saying, God, no one has ever made a story about the 1950s, Northern Ireland pre-Troubles. Mm-hmm. And then when I read Ken's script of Belfast, it just sang to me because I thought, well, he's actually doing that, even though his one is 1969, it is literally pre-Troubles. But he captured the authenticity of what it was like to live there in those streets where life was very simple. It was a great deal with your neighbours taking care of you as much as your parents. That, that shared community Protestants and Catholics living together that was so violently disrupted throughout you know, the 70s and 80s and 90s. So that was important to me. And once Ken wrote that line, you know, at the end of the film, um, he wrote that later. He wrote that after Christmas for the ones who stayed, for the ones who left, and for all of those who were lost. Mm-hmm. That was just... It revealed to me, yes, you know, I know everyone says that Morrison is a poet, but Ken is a poet because Ken, yes. I think he just captured it. He got the right words at the right time and he did that. And and he always wanted John Morrison to be top and tail of the film. And that also afforded me sort of a freedom to then do a lot more work in the sound design before our... Now, our brilliant sound team, obviously, they built on what, what we've done, but our, we have to do it in the edit because with the way I work, you have to have the sound yeah. to create that rhythm and pace and... Um, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate and very privileged to work with Ken because I think we both like to be like magpies. We find things in other scenes that we can cheat in and we can be quite creative in our solutions to any challenges we might face from a storytelling point of view. But we kept just the heart of the film in our minds as the first protocol. And fearlessly getting rid of shots that may have been very beautiful. And had we held them longer, for example, it may have given the film a more sort of... Um, tableau feel mm-hmm. sequence of memories and actually by being a bit more fearless in cutting we were able to create the rhythm that I think you enjoyed of just going from laughter to sadness to laughter to capturing what it is to be a human I've got to ask you what is the gift that editing gives to you specifically editing in filmmaking that's not typically a choice that people make um, however, some of our greatest editors have proven to be women. Uh, just ask Marty Scorsese, ask Ken Branagh. Um, what is what what is the gift that this this skill, this innate skill you have for editing? What is the gift it gives you? I think you know I love storytelling, and my dad was a brilliant storyteller as a child. He tells the best bedtime stories and. He'd even, uh, you know, some dramatic conclusion, he'd have my mom on the light switch so she could turn the light off as he grabbed one of our legs if it was a horror story before bedtime. So I think for, for me, I just love being able to go through all that footage and and cut something together using sound and music and imagery and that can reveal a truth that the audience may not be privy to without us telling us in that way. So I'm always attracted to stories of... Um, you know, giving voice to the unheard or people who have been ignored on a sort of political social level, I'm always interested in that. But I also love the magic of, you know, the Marvel movies or you know, the Warner Brothers big movies. So for me, I, I think I just love it. It's very hard to articulate what it is because I'm on my own a lot of the time. Sometimes the directors are behind me. But I can just do it in a very thoughtful way, just in a mindful way myself. I'm just watching, and sometimes I could cycle home, and uh, an idea comes to me, and I think, oh, maybe that could work for the opening, and I can throw up, throw ideas up in the air. So I think I'm very good at that. I think that's my strength is probably just keeping the story. What's the best way to tell this story and to keep the um, the audience 
involved and having empathy for the characters and having an emotional reaction. If if I was in any other job, I think you know, on set. Anytime I go to set, there's so many people. I think I, I think like most editors, we work really well in sort of quiet space of just looking and working and grafting and finding the truthfulness in the rushes. Well, you first... If it speaks to me, it will speak to the, an audience. That's what I think. So when I create something, I sort of think, well, if, if that's working for me, <clears throat> I'll, I'll show it to the director. And if it works for them, you can sort of... We're the first audience to the rushes. We're the first uh, people to see what the director has created on set. And then if it works for us, I think it, it, there's a good chance it'll work for the, a, a greater audience. Well, it definitely, definitely I, worked yeah. for me, Una. Definitely. No, thank you, Debbie. If you ever come to London or Dublin, I'm taking you out for dinner. Thank you so much. And I'll hold you to it, Una. Thank you so much. This has been a pure joy about a film that I love so, so, so much. And I hope I get thank to talk you. to you again in the future. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have thank a good you. day. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was my exclusive with Una Dangale, uh, the editor on Belfast. Um, again, I love this film. It truly is. Every cinematic element, every performance element, this is, for my money, the best picture of the year. And Una is definitely a front runner. Uh, for best editing of a motion picture. If you haven't seen it yet, it just opened this weekend. You've got plenty of time. See it, see it, see it. There are lots of great films that are out and that are coming. And the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the others as they are coming. Uh, but Belfast is high. It's at the top of my list for you to see. And you can take the, f not tiny little kids, but because this is in Buddy's PO, nine-year-old Buddy's POV, you can take your elementary school-age kids to see this film. Um, if if my nephews were still um, elementary-aged and not out of college and now going into a sen seniors in high school, uh, I would drag. I'd go back east and drag them uh, to see it. Um, so. We're going to move on here in just a second. Um, I do want to point out, thank you, Steve Lee, Hollywood Sound Museum. Uh, Steve very graciously sent me a text the minute the results came down from the IATSE. The contract uh, vote, uh, the contract was ratified. So there will not be an IATSE strike. The industry will not be shut down. Uh, at least not for this. Pam's in the booth going thumbs up, thumbs up. And also, before I bring Kirby McClure on, if you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream page, or if you've, you're looking at my social media this morning, uh, as I do every week, have a tablescape set up uh, and with an assortment of things. This week, again, thank you, Netflix. I have to give you a, a big th thank you again for these wonderful, for your consideration, gifties. Uh, last week, you sent this glorious package of the Mitchells for the Mitchells versus the Machines, a truly wonderful animated film. Uh, you'll see some of that here, but also now this week, they have sent a glorious book and screener for Rebecca Hall's movie Passing. Stunning film. 
Um, Tessa Thompson can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. Ruth Naga is in the film. And this marks Rebecca's writing and directorial debut. So that's, an, that's another good one. Get it on your viewing list for awards. But right now, we're, gonna, we're switching gears and we're, we're going to travel all the way to Spaghetti Junction in Georgia with Kirby McClure. Hi, Kirby. Hi, how are you? I am very excited to speak with you about Spaghetti Junction. Yeah, thank you for having me. I didn't know what to expect when I saw this film. And, um, you know, apparently my cousin-in-law, he saw my, my teaser post about you being on the show today. And he and, and his husband, they live outside of Atlanta and are well. They're one, apparently one, one interstate exit away from Spaghetti Junction. Uh, oh, nice. So okay. <laughs> Obi knows it, to me. Obi knows it well. And nice. uh, he and his big question to me, which I will ask you is, did the idea for Spaghetti Junction have anything to do with making it a horror film about Atlanta traffic? So <laughs> <laughs> Not not exactly, but I think maybe maybe indirectly. Indirectly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, no. I think I was inspired by the area in general. You know, I mean, it is this crossroads where it is like five or six different freeways that come together, uh, and it's you know it's, it's as much as it is like a metaphorical kind of crossroads of all of these different um, people and personalities and characters in my film that come together. Uh, but it also is the setting of the film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely inspired by the uh, Spaghetti Junction world. Well, and but not the traffic too much, I hope. Well, you've got your own kind of traffic happening here, a celestial kind of traffic uh, true. in Spaghetti true. Junction. Talk to me <laughs> about the, uh, the premise of this film. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know what to expect when, uh, when I sat down to watch the film. Um, you know, the log line, you know, disabled teenager in the Deep South encounters a traveler from the stars with supernatural origins doesn't mm-hmm. tell us a whole lot but it leaves a lot to the imagination and as right. I start watching <laughs> this film and immediately I gravitated towards Kate Hughes who plays August what mm-hmm. a find Kirby yeah yeah she is she's, the she's heart incredible. the heart of this film the camera loves her but it's the emotion that she brings. And the fact that right. you have this in your script where August has been in a car accident, a devastating accident. Her mother was killed. Her sister came through it unscathed. But right. August is now an amputee. She lost her leg. She was a, a former gymnast. Uh, and for those that don't know, Kate Hughes is one of the most accomplished triathletes uh, <laughs> in the country. Uh, she is an amputee. She is a triathlete. Yeah. Uh, and she is amazing in the sporting world. Amazing. So to see her she now is. on screen was a real treat uh, for me. But, absolutely, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. all, this film rises and falls on Kate's performance. So, yeah. obviously, did you have, when you set out to write this script, did you have the idea of your lead character being an amputee um, and facing those mm-hmm. challenges and then interweaving that 
with the special nature of the power that comes from the traveler beyond the stars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's a mixture of a lot of things from my personal life as far as my kind of family struggles and challenges that we've had, you know, dealing with loss and addiction and all of those kind of things. Um, and then I had a, a childhood friend when I was young who was a leg amputee who was this kind of incredible skateboarder. Um, but I was always interested in what the process was between when the actual, uh, you know, tragedy happened in their life to how they overcame that mm. um, to become this sort of heroic figure in my neighborhood, at least. Um, so I wanted to, to tell a story about what that journey was like. Um, and, you know, the, the most difficult part of the film was the casting. Obviously, uh, I had someone very specific in mind, at least in my head, and then trying to find that person in this the physical world uh, seemed to be a little bit more difficult. So, you know, a lot of the feedback I was getting when I first started reaching out and trying to get financing for the film and try to, to get it, you know, on its way was to potentially cast a, uh, you know, like a named actor that could, they could bring um, some sort of yeah name to the film, basically. Mm -hmm. But the idea would be, you know, let's find this actor and then we can always paint their leg out in post. But to me, that kind of defeated the purpose of, of making the film at all. Um, I wanted that authenticity and I wanted to be able to, to, to see how you know, a 16-year-old girl with this very specific uh, disability would be interacting with her world. Mm. Uh, so then I set about actually trying to find her, and I went and I reached out to different amputee clinics and prosthetic clinics, children's hospitals um, all over North America, and the casting process took about a year. Um, and to be honest, I think by the end I was kind of considering giving up because it seemed like maybe she just wasn't out there. But then, you know, probably in the last week or so where I was still kind of keeping my options open, I got this email with an audition tape in my inbox and um, kind of immediately almost just brought tears to my eyes um, or tingles down my spine or, you know, a combination of the two. And I said, wow, that's, you know, that, that's her. We're, we're going to make this film. She brought that, that weight and that sensitivity and everything that I was kind of looking for. Um, it was kind of a magical moment. So then bringing her down here, she lived in New York City. So it was about bringing her down to the south and putting her in that house to kind of live the life of August um, for about a two to three weeks before shooting, just to kind of get her into this world and experience mm -hmm. and dream in that house and live in that house and be with the family, her on-screen family. Um, and, and she was completely dedicated to the role. And this was her first time in front of camera. You know, wow. she, I don't think she'd even really done like a high school play. So um, this was her debut in, in many ways, and um, it was absolutely amazing to work with her, and, and, and the collaboration we had was very, very incredible, cl cl close to my heart, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's watching Kate on screen is just amazing, and she's in, I'd say, what, 90% of the, of, the, of the scenes in the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And, you know, part and parcel with that, while she does have, while August does have quite a few scenes with her sister, Shiny, um, and Eleanor gives a, a lovely job as, you know, a put upon, you know, chip on her shoulder sister. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, watching Kate go one on one with Tyler Rainey, who plays our traveler. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Because you have two different dynamics happening with their chemistry and their characters. Uh, because right. we have what's happening in Spaghetti Junction, in the, the wood, mm -hmm. the wooded areas, the forested areas. 
um, yeah. as they're going through and so connective, the connective tissue with nature and having their physical meeting take place in the beauty of nature and all the wondrous things that nature offers. But then we have the second setting through essentially through August dreams where August and the traveler physically meet up in this smoky cloud covered area where anything is possible. Right. Yeah. And it's two totally different connective tissues between them and each just as fascinating and mesmerizing as the other. <laughs> yeah. How did you that's, go that's, how did you go about creating? I mean because that that's kind of daring. The way that you're <laughs> telling this story, that's a very daring way with your two lead characters to set up these right. two worlds with distinctive differences between them, but the emotion rings true in both. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that's good to hear. I think um, for me, in order to really look at artist's life and, and experience, you know, what her world is like living in this neighborhood and with everything that her family is dealing with, her dad losing his job, that they're in this sort of industrial kind of worn down neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And there is this, you know, hint of nature and secrecy and stuff kind of on the edges. And that's where she escapes to have this kind of secret, mysterious love. Um, but I think in, in my mind, it's, it, you can't just look at the external world. If you really want to examine someone's experience um, and, and to go for that kind of authenticity, sometimes I think you have to journey into the surreal a little bit, um, in my mind at least, because there's as much happening in her head, you mm -hmm. know, psychologically, as there is happening. You know, she, she says very few words, even though she is in almost every scene. Yeah externally she's um she's watching and she's observing mm -hmm. and she's being affected by her world but then you know there's so much more happening you know in her dreams and in her fantasies and in her thoughts so for me in order to fully understand her character or at least get a little bit more in, in, into her character yeah you had to get in, into her head and that's where she has these dreams so she has this relationship with this mysterious you know entity who she encounters in the woods um and they have it is true. They have kind of two relationships. There's mm -hmm. one that's much more romantic and kind of dreamy in this dreamy world. And then in the external world, it's a little bit more of a question of, you know, is it something she's just imagining, you know, or um, what, what are this, this guy's intentions or what are, what are his um, origins? Um, and I, and I, to me, I like that sort of open-endedness. Mm -hmm. um, and, but in her dreams, she is everything that she wanted as, as an escape from this, this kind of harsh reality she's living in. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for me, it, it was it was important to to have both the dream world and her external world. It's like a family drama, but then it's also this very surreal psychological kind of place too that she she goes into. And this is where the, your work with your cinematographer with Christian Zaniga is so important um, because it's lensed beautifully. We we get the visual the tone of the grit um, of the region of the area. Uh, mm -hmm. The depressed nature of it, the shuttered up old shopping center in which there is this really freaky organ player, <laughs> you know, who pops yeah. up. 
Um, but it's you can tell the shopping center has been abandoned for years. I mean, the, the weeds are growing in the parking lot through through the tar. Um, but right. Then we get the neighborhood. Uh, we get the neighborhood in which August lives. Uh, typical suburban kind of neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. You can tell based on their house that, okay, they're more economically depressed than, say, the neighbor across, the loudmouth neighbor across the street who hates everything and everybody. Um, right. But then you give us the woodlands, you give us the forested areas, and you saturate the greens in there. They become so right. rich. A trail of white, they look like lilies um, that mm-hmm. should be growing. Uh, magnolias, in, actually. The, okay, I wasn't sure whether it was <laughs> actually magnolias or if it was lilies um, that mm-hmm. just, they lead a path. They're like breadcrumbs leading August to the traveler. And those magnolias, be, those blossoms become so key by the time we get to the third act of the film. Um, right. they, they blanket her, for lack of a better description. Right. They are a salvation mm-hmm. to her. Um, but the vibrancy and the old drainage sewer area where the traveler is staying, that is so warm and rich with fire and color. There's more color in that drainage area (laughs) than anywhere else in the film. And then the grays, the shades of gray, uh, the haunting, the haunting ethereal nature of the dream world. Um, right. The, this is these palettes are so beautifully done, Kirby. So I'm curious how you and Christian developed, you know, not only the int- the visual tonal bandwidth, the overall look of the film, but these individual pieces that have to fit together to create that overall emotional right. sensation and look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so Christian is incredible. He actually, um, he lives in Atlanta, and he came up shooting lots of rap and hip-hop videos mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Um, but, you know, I, I knew I wanted to work with him when I had seen some short films he had done um, that just have this real sensitivity to light um, and a kind of a naturalism to it where it doesn't feel overly stylized. Um, so it feels like you're really seeing things without too much... Um, you know, doctoring them or kind of manipulating them, um, but yet they can still be really beautiful and, and painterly. Um, and that's something he just brings to it intuitively without trying, I think. Um, but we, we started having meetings and creating almost like this little book or a little you know, visual Bible that was sort of um, descriptions with image references from different films and photographers of how each setting, you know, needed to look. Um, so we had, you know, a chapter about the house and the way the kind of dark wood paneling, but then you would have this natural light coming in with shadows that are always moving from the outside where the you know, branches of trees and things like that. And then we wanted to draw a very distinct difference, of course, like a contrast between her waking life and what those dreams are like. And then as you go on further, there starts to be a little bit of a bleed between the two mm-hmm. as her fantasy world and her harsh reality kind of start coming together. Um, so yeah, it was, there was a lot of, um, time spent kind of figuring out each distinct world and then how they could start to bleed together as the film uh, progressed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it was also about, you know, th- th- there's something about this area where it is 
rundown and industrial. And like you said, there's yeah, there's abandoned factories and abandoned strip malls everywhere that are boarded up. But at the same time, around them, you know, at night in the summertime, you have swarms of fireflies, yeah. you know, amongst the, the smog of semi-trucks in the distance. And you've got kudzu that's kind of overgrowing these places. And it's like nature's reclaiming these places. And there's a new kind of beauty in that where you feel, um, you know, human civilization with this beautiful kind of natural world always around it, almost trying to swallow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to capture that, that was that was something we were after as well. Yeah, I mean, it's... it. There are so many images, and you even come in, Christian comes in, you've got some extreme close-ups, of, such as with an ant just walking <laughs> over right. the knuckles of Traveler's hand, his fascination with the ant, or berries, or, um, uh, yeah, or in one scene, August, she's, she's desperate to pee, gotta go, that's what woods are for, folks, um, <laughs> and it's amazing. Something I have noticed since the time I was little, whenever people are peeing in the woods, no matter how you stand or where you stand, your shoe always gets wet. Just, just absolutely po- yeah. pointing that out. Happen. I mean, <laughs> you've got that. Um, but just the minutia of the beauty of nature, and that nature, I think, is what really connects us with the energy of the traveler, especially since he's mm-hmm. looking for salvation, something that will save his people, his civilization, and it's the magnolia blossom. Right. Um, yeah, it's something, too, that I think it, um, well, yeah, to speak about the, the kind of smaller moments, like with the ant on the hand, too, is, you know, instead of, it, it is a very, it's a, it has science fiction elements to the mm-hmm. film. Sure. Um, but, you know, but, but keeping it sort of subtle in a way too and you know you can you can have someone who's potentially from another world and what would it be like to look at an ant on your hands versus you know the bigger sort of approach to a sci-fi film um you know of an alien kind of coming to this planet and it would be this very big like epic kind of moment but what about a quiet moment of someone from another world you know looking at an insect for the first time by the warmth of a fire um so trying to get into those kind of nuances and that's what sort of starts to bring them together where they start to connect over um, their love of the surrounding area mm-hmm. and then trying to, you know, escape into these little details. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. And then also coming from the, the, the flowers, like you were, we were talking about, I think. I like the idea, too, of it almost being a fantasy that's coming from the things that she's just seeing around her. It's almost like mm-hmm. it's coming from her subconscious. So there are, are these magnolia flowers that bloom like crazy in, in the south in the summertime. So they're all around her, um, and it's almost like she's imagining, you know, maybe, maybe these are the cure for something. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe this. She's just taking all that's around her and sort of putting it into her own little mythological tale that she's experiencing by just the flowers that she sees growing in the park, a drainage pipe, and imagining what if someone lived there? What if what if these flowers had something to do with that? Because she's creating an escape for herself from the reality she lives in, where her dad is struggling with addiction, her sister is, you know, she's, her sister's escaping off by doing drugs and hanging out with her older boyfriend and she needs her escape, but her escape is much more imaginative and and her dreaming up this little romantic tale that happens in the woods behind her house, basically. Yes, but but how, how imagined is it? Because you have that very important, very important phone call in there 
where her physical therapist's office calls her father and says she's healing much faster than they ever anticipated. Right, right. Exactly. And and I like blurring those lines. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she is suddenly starting to heal much faster. So it's like, is there something going on? Maybe she is having some kind of healing experience. Um, or is she just healing, you know, as a coincidence? But I think for me, it's it's that's the kind of through line that takes takes it to the end as well as you know yeah. it, by the end she doesn't go into the world with the alien and escape her world she stays but but she, she's going to be different you know she she's healed in one way or another because she's maybe she's found some kind of new self-confidence um something that's given her an experience where she had to be someone taking care of somebody else and they had this journey together and even if it was imagined it's affected her in a, in a positive way Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, she is healing in one way or another, you know? Um, so yeah, and maybe it's in her head. Maybe it's real. <laughs> that's just it. You li- it's very ambiguous. You can interpret it either way. And of course that third act, um, that climactic scene in Chicago, um, is, right. uh, there's so much allegory in that scene, Kirby. Um, <laughs> uh, that was absolutely, I didn't see that coming. That was really remarkable uh and it how and how you executed that because that added a whole other it was almost christ-like um Mm. with everybody Mm -hmm. clamoring and wanting the holy spirit to infuse them to touch them they want to taste it they want to feel uh that piece of you know god um so that allegory is so strong there and it really mm-hmm. plays so beautifully. Um, you know, I, that really just blew my mind. That, that, you know, leading into the final moments of the film, just stupendous. Yeah. But, you know, icing the cake on everything here, I have to tell you, your score by the band Health, oh, my God, right. the score is so incredible. Yeah. And then throughout the film, you have the very weird, twangy, old Southern song from the, from the early 1900s, I think it is. Um, right, it is. And it just plays and plays and plays, but mm-hmm. only for August. She only hears it through her headphones, but we hear it. Oh, we yeah. hear it a lot. <laughs> it's 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 almost like... You know that's her white noise to drone out. It is everything exactly else. What it is. How how yeah, and- how did you pick that song? And what is the name of that song? And then counter that because what health then brings in from a score standpoint with electronic sounds and all it they are mm-hmm. just it's it's a total contrast a juxtaposition contrast. Yeah, for sure. So. The, the track is by an artist from, you're exactly right, from like the early 1900s. His name is Chubby Parker. Uh, and the name of the, of the song is King Kong Kichi Kichi Kaimyo. <laughs> and it's this um, folk song that's been apparently kind of interpreted from old Spanish songs that apparently they can find the sort of lineage of this song that goes back to like the 1500s. Okay. Um, but it's basically about a frog trying to find this lover that lives in, an, in a tree stump, like a whole... Like, uh, a hole in a tree basically and trying to go into this hole in the tree and get this bride to be his lover. And then he's having to kind of duel with a sword and a knife with 
another um, you know suitor who's trying to get to uh, this bride to be who lives in a, in a hollow tree. <laughs> um, so it's obviously got a little bit of um, relevance to the story itself. Um, but I like it too because I, the way I kind of connect. First of all, my son really loves the song, and it's something that I. It's just a fun kind of cool song, even though it has really weirdly kind of dark undercurrents in the song because it is about like murder to get this lover who lives under a tree and stuff. But um, yeah, there's something childlike about it. And, and the way I, I sort of tie it together is you'll see in, in one of the flashback sequences when she's with her mom and one of her last memories of being with her mom when this tragic car accident happened, they're listening to it in the car mm-hmm. on the on the car stereo. Um, so it's this kind of moment where she can revisit that last moment when things were still glued together in her life when her mom was still there and, and things were sort of balanced in her life. She had much more of an ordinary life before this tragic thing happened. So to her, that song is like a comfort blanket or yeah. something, you know, where, where it's that last moment in her life and she can remember her mom and remember that, that last five minutes or whatever it was before everything got turned upside down in her life. Um, so that's that track. And then um, health or incredible bands who I've known about for years and they've become friends over the years. We've actually collaborated on another project previously. Um, but their music to me, um, is, is so harsh and kind of almost metal, but then it's got this, you know, um, Jake's voice it has this angelic quality to it. Mm-hmm. So it is this mishmash of kind of like angelic etherealness with harsh guitars and electronic and like, yeah industrial sort of sounds um so yeah it was a chance meeting we actually crossed paths again after not being in touch for a year or two and um, i told them a little bit about the film and we started talking and um i sent them a rough cut of the film once it was shot and they and we exchanged references stuff they were kind of feeling stuff that i was feeling and they came back with um you know these tracks that i would listen to that just sort of transported me because they were cosmic and beautiful but also did have this kind of um industrial harshness which fits the theme of the story Mm because it is in this you know post-industrial kind of landscape but like we were talking about earlier but there's this nature and this secret that's kind of around her that she can escape to and it does have this cosmic origin potentially you know we all do i guess but um i think uh the music they made really touched on all those sort of abstract elements um, and when I, I would take a scene in the film that, you know, I was excited about, but potentially it's, um, you know, August and her dad sitting having a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> but then you put the score that they created to it and, and with some sound design underneath it. And mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, a, a father and a daughter having a grilled cheese sandwich became something that was much more um, powerful, you know, or had mm-hmm. a little bit more emotion to it. So, um, yeah, they, they're, they're incredible. And they've done course for video games like Max Payne, uh, Grand Theft Auto and that kind of stuff. Um, so I knew that they would have something very interesting. And, and to be honest, I think what they came back with was unexpected. It was quite different than the references that I shared with them, but it was purely, you know, their response to the film in the way that some of those early, early scenes looked that I shared with them. I mean, I, so. I think it's, it works so beautifully and it really fits the story that is unfolding. It fits the landscape. It fits the ambient tone. It fits the personality of August and the personality of the traveler and the mystery there. I, I think I really like this score that they've done. I really That's like awesome. it. 
Now, this yeah, this, this was your first fi- feature film. It is, yes. So, the big question, what was the learning curve like? <laughs> or are you so, so, you know, overwhelmed by this experience that, nah, you're done with features? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, um, definitely, uh, you know, working on new ideas and new stuff. But yeah, it was definitely a learning experience. Um, You know, I've shot short films and music videos and commercials and things, which was, I sort of, my film school was kind of learning on the fly by just shooting things and kind of exploring, you know, characters. Um, But yeah, this was my first time telling a a story and I guess a a story that's this, you know, long, a feature length. And um, yeah, I was, I was nervous for sure stepping into it like you know am i going to be able to do this but i think the the good thing is i wrote the script as well so i understood the intention of the characters and i understood the intention of a scene and and a lot of times especially with a film where you don't have the money to um spend times and times to get exactly what you need i would have to leave a scene much quicker than i wanted to so i would have to kind of you know crystallize it to what, what is this scene actually about uh what what lines have to be delivered uh, in order for me to be able to tell my story still. Um, but because I wrote it, I could kind of understand that a, a little bit more. So I think little, little things like that, of just trying to understand the essence of each scene. So if it comes down to it, you can just get two lines of dialogue maybe that still makes the scene stand. Or maybe it's something that doesn't even need dialogue, and it ends up being a shot that's kind of more abstract, a close-up of someone scratching their head or looking down or looking out the window or something can sometimes capture the feeling of something without having this long kind of scene of dialogue that, maybe would have been, um, you know, not as strong as someone just looking out the window and you can kind of superimpose your own ideas of what that character is thinking about. Um, but working with actors, I don't know. I think I was, I was blessed to, to have the, the, the talent that I worked with on this. Um, obviously Kate, uh, Cam, who plays the dad, Tyler, mm-hmm. who plays the being, uh, you know, Jesse Gallegos, who, who plays, um, Antonio, these people just kind of came together and I'm, uh, a lot of them were local, actually, and um, yeah, read the script and were able to kind of dig into this world with me and uh, put their time into it. So it went relatively smoothly. I think post was actually where a lot of the, the challenges came in because we wrapped shooting in uh, 2019, mm-hmm. and then of course COVID <laughs> happened you know, shortly after that, and all the posts had to be done over Zoom. So I was I was doing a lot of the post in, in London from from the US. So I was, you know, waking up at like one or two o'clock in the morning sometimes to to oversee edit sessions and that kind of thing. Uh, and it ended up getting dragged out, you know, probably about a year and a half longer than I than I wanted it to. But um, yeah, I learned a lot. I think um, I'm sure I'll have a different approach to certain things for my next film. And I'm, I'm definitely working on new ideas and new things and seeing seeing where the wind blows me for the next, the next story I want to tell. So now where is the wind blowing Spaghetti Junction? <laughs> right now the wind is uh, blowing. We, we don't fully know yet, to be honest, or I can't, I can't talk about it, but there's a few, a few other festivals I'm still waiting on, um, you know, news about. I did get accepted to one festival. I've been asked not to, to talk about it publicly just yet. Mm-hmm. Um because there's, you know, some, some stuff they're still waiting on. But uh, many, many festivals uh, are going to be notifying in December and early January, um, and we'll see who responds to it. Well, <laughs> Just kind of putting it out there and seeing, uh, yeah, seeing who 
who kind of vibes with it. And, and I hope I hope to get this film, you know, internationally too. I'd love to be able to screen it in Europe and and, and show it to other people and mm. see what their reaction is as well. So hopefully that'll be, uh, you know, in the future too. Now, do we have a website where people can go to and see? where the film is going, what festivals it's going to be popping up in, so they know what, how, where they can rush to and see it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, SpaghettiJunctionFilm.com, and it has the trailer and, you know, the synopsis and info, and it will have the screening dates um, as soon as, as they're available. Them, yeah. And contact info and all of that kind of stuff, it's all on, yeah, SpaghettiJunctionFilm.com. Oh, Kirby, this has been so wonderful having you on the show today. Um, I really, I really like this film. Um, it is, I didn't, as I said, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I just, the minute it it started and the minute Kate came on screen is August. I'm just, I, I was in it and just went deeper and deeper and deeper along this journey of August and the Traveler. Just wow, yeah. so beautiful. Uh, thank, so thank <laughs> so much emotion in this film, Kirby. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all your questions and stuff, too. This has been really fun to chat with you. Oh, so, thank you. And I hope you'll you. come back on the show again, Kirby. I would love to. I would love to. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Kirby McClure, writer-director of Spaghetti Junction. So, be on the lookout for that, SpaghettiJunctionFilm.com. You can find out what festivals, and I do know there are a lot of festivals that will be making announcements over the next two months uh, for films that will be appearing. And this is definitely one you want on your radar. So, that is all the time we have today. We are back again next week with another filmmaker. And I'm not sure which exclusive interview we have. I have to check on some Christmas-themed embargoes uh, and see who I'm allowed. Because uh, I've got some interviews I've done that, that you know, I can't, I can't even talk about until mid-December. Uh, so... <laughs> and it pains me because some of them are really interesting people that I know you're going to love hearing about and hearing from. So we'll see what happens next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>